Hello everyone, welcome back to the Salem Witch Trials and we've just done the uh, part where the pirates were reprieved so we're just going to continue. The pirate reprieve was one of the series of controversial decisions made by the assistants in the years leading up to the witch trials. In addition to being named councillors under the new charter, all of the judges had been leaders of the colony since the overthrow of Andros. All served on the interim council for safety except for C. Wong, who was in England at the time helping to try to restore the charter. All would serve on the council in Bradstreet's interim government except for Sergeant and, well, Sergeant and Gedney, who served the government for other roles. The Sergeant was appointed to several committees by the interim government overseeing, levying and paying of soldiers, as well as helping to organise the Fund FIPS 1690 expedition against Canada. Meanwhile, Stoughton and Seawall were commissioners, that is, appointed representatives of the government, who travelled to New York to help plan an overland invasion of Canada, to be undertaken by New York and Connecticut militia in coordination with FIPS' naval attack on Quebec. The attack up the Hudson River, led by Wade Winthrop's brother, Fitz John, would end in total failure, never reaching its intended target, Montreal. As colonel in command of the Essex militia, Gedney was also a key figure in the failing war effort. He had served on the organising committee for the invasion of Port Royal in the summer of 1690 and even been offered command of it, but he declined it. In the spring of 1691, it was appointed one of seven commissioners to meet with the natives in Maine to extend the truce. Gedney was just one of six of the judges who were high-ranking militia officers. Winthrop was a major general with overall command of the Massachusetts militia. Major Saltonstall commanded the Northern Division of the Essex Regiment while Richards and Stoughton were both majors and Seawall a captain in the Suffolk militia. Hathorne and Corwin were not officers, but the late fathers had been and they were well acquainted with the military world. Collectively, then, in their leadership roles, these men were responsible for the colony's utter military and political failure in the war against the natives and the French allies, and for that had earned the wrath of the electorate. Divine displeasure must have been a great concern to the judges, as the popular discontent. As devout Puritans, they interpreted everything as a sign of God's pleasure or displeasure. Ministers have been warning people for several decades that they needed to undergo more reformation to turn Massachusetts back to the godly experiment, a city upon a hill. It was time for people to repent. In March 1690, the concern took the form of the campaign for universal moral reformation approved by the General Court, including assistants Richard, Seawall, Corwin, Waite, Winthrop and Hathorne. Two years later, it must have been clear to them that the campaign for reformation had failed as miserably as a military campaign. The continued hardships New England faced proved God was still displeased. Now he had set the devil loose to punish New England, or at least to try its faith. The first step would have to be rooting out Satan's agents. 
The judges must have felt that the destruction of the frontier settlements in the war was God's judgment against them personally, for most of them had speculated heavily in frontier land in the 1680s. The exercise in greed had also brought them into contact with the dark world, for these lands were recently purchased or taken from Native Americans. Based on their business ventures, the judges of the court of Oyo and Termina were actually better qualified to preside over a land court than cases of witchcraft. Winthrop held title to huge tracts of frontier lands in Connecticut, Rhode Island and Massachusetts. He inherited much of this land from his father, John Winthrop Jr. and grandfather Governor John Winthrop. Though Waite and his brother Fitzjohn had supplemented their holdings while both were councillors in Dudley's provisional government of 1686. Their brother-in-law, John Richards, had an interest in the Winthrop lands through his marriages to two Winthrop brides. Betty also had a long history of involvement in the frontier, going back to his 1649 purchase of Arosic Island, Maine, from the Androscoggin Sachem, the English called Robin Hood. <laughs> in the 1680s and 1690s, Richard was also a major mortgage holder for property in Greater Boston, although these lands were far from the frontier. His investments would have been sensitive to the declines in value due to the war. The real estate interests of Winthrop and Richards were among the most substantial in New England, but those of their late brother-in-law, Richard Wharton, were even greater. As a member of the Atherton Company, Wharton owned lands in Rhode Island. He also was a partner with his kinsman, Joseph Dudley, in the several efforts in the Nimuk and Merrimack regions, including the so-called Million Acre Purchase. Well, it's a speculative land venture in the uh, Merrimack River Valley. And he was an absentee proprietor of Dunstable. In 1683 and 1684, Wharton had purchased the Pedrobscott patent from the Purchase and Way families and had the sale of the 500,000 acre parcel confirmed by six Indian sachems of the Androscoggin and Kennebec rivers. In 1686, Wharton, along with Stoughton, Dudley, and several others, formed a company to purchase lands from the Mohagans in Connecticut. One of the partners was John Blackwell, had invested in confiscating church lands in England in the 1650s, that was during Oliver Cromwell's tenure. After the Restoration, when the lands reverted to the church, Blackwell and other speculators migrated to New England. Thus, some of the frontier investors of the 1680s had ties to Puritan speculation in Cromwell's England. Wharton died in London in 1689, having travelled there to push for the replacement of Governor Edmund Andros after the government refused to confirm Wharton's title to Prejudice Scott. Seawall and Corwin also maintained sizable interests in the frontier. Seawall and his wife, Hannah, inherited tremendous wealth and hundreds of acres of land from her father, John Hull. The family owned shares in the Petaquemscut Company on the western side of Rhode Island's Narragansett 
Bay, and particularly owned a large farm at Point Judith. The Seawalls held numerous properties in the Great Boston area and also owned sawmills on Maine frontier. In 1687, Samuel recorded in his diary a visit to his sawmills at Salmon Falls, a few miles upriver from, if I can pronounce this, Newichawanock, present-day Berwick, anyway. During the trip, he spent the night in York, at the home of his cousin, Reverend Shubael Dummer. Sewell also went to Wells, where it was possible he saw the mills belonging to Salem merchant Jonathan Corwin. Gedney's property interests were not as extensive as those of the kinsmen, the Corwins and the Winthrops, but they were still significant. In 1674, Gedney purchased an estimated 100,000 acres of land in West Costugo, from Thomas Stevens. Shortly after the fur trader bought it from the Sachem Robin Hood and his followers. Gedney's gristmill and two sawmills burned during King Philip's War. After the war, he rebuilt these operations and was granted a house lot in nearby Falsmouth, Maine. In 1684, the General Court awarded Gedney an additional 500 acres in Maine in thanks for his expedition in Casca Bay, that was in 1679, to help re-establish the English settlements that had been abandoned in the King Philip's War. In 1686, Gedney Richards Wharton had several others, including Shabayon Dummer's brother, support an effort to set up lands in the West Costugo as a home for the English refugees forced out of Eleuthera Island in the Bahamas by the Spanish by the way. Bartholomew was not the only member of his family with sizable main interests. Okay, wait a minute. So, us English were everywhere. Because we, we were also in the Bahamas, we were in Spain, we were in France, we were in America. Wow. Us English were everywhere, guys, I think. Looking at the history of everything, clearly, we were everywhere. I mean, his brother married Mary Pates Hall, whose family consisted of Boston merchants and major investors in mainlands. Mary's father had been killed on the Kennebec and King Philip's War, and her brother Richard died in the 1689 attack on Permaquid. Richard Pateshall's great-grandson, Paul Revere, was one of the many heirs who received a share of his mainlands, when they were finally divided. Even Nathaniel Saltonstall, who left the witchcraft court early in its proceedings, had extensive property interests. The judge's family owned thousands of acres of land, thanks largely to his grandfather, that was Sir Richard Saltonstall, a Massachusetts Bay Company leader and investor. Most of these tracts were in frontier areas, including Connecticut and the Piscataqua, I don't know what that is. Um, never heard of it. I'm sure it's called something else now. Nathaniel lived on a substantial estate in Haverhill, one of the most exposed frontier settlements in the colony. He also owned more than a thousand acres of land in Ipswich, where his family's properties included a sizable mill complex. In the early 1680s, Saltonstall was granted a house lot in Falmouth, Maine, 
Well, they're to help re-establish the government. Most of Saltonstall's wealth came from renting his various properties. The only member of court of Oyerin Termina who was not a substantial holder of frontier lands was Peter Sergeant. However, even this wealthy Boston merchant had at least one such investment. He was partner with Seawall and Ellie Kim Hutchinson in the 1684 purchase of 50% of the ironworks and sawmill in Braintree. He was also brother-in-law of Samuel Shrimpton, one of the holders of the Million Acre Purchase. These business ties, as well as his kinship ties, meant that Sergeant shared the interests and presumably the views of his fellow members of the merchant class. The judges, their kin and their fellow merchants, suffered the largest financial losses in King William's War, as the frontier settlements, they were destroyed. Seawall estimated that he and his father-in-law had invested 2,000 in the Kittery sawmills, destroyed in raids in 1689 and 1690. Bear in mind, £2,000 back then was a hell of a lot of money. It was millions now, you know, um, or at least in double thousands. It, it was a lot. Indians also burned the mills owned by Gednick Corwin and many others. Without the mills, New England lost one of its most important exports, one that helped to drive the region's economy. The speculative bubble had burst. Frontier lands occupied by the warring Wabanaki had no value and no buyers. They were worthless for the time being. The magnitude of these losses is hard to imagine. Only little more than 2% of all men who died in Boston in this era left an estate worth £2,000 and the richest estate was £3,417. The average Bostonian who died in the, in the 1690s left roughly £200 in personal property and real estate. Seawall and the other merchants had lost enough to bankrupt just about anyone else. Many of the judges were connected to the native population, not simply through real estate deals and ownership of frontier land, but also through their involvement in what was called the Society for Propagation of the Gospel in New England, more commonly known as the New England Company. First established in 1649 by the Puritan-dominated Long Parliament in England, the Protestant Missionary Society raised and invested funds that were sent to its commissioners in New England to pay the salaries of Puritan missionaries. The company also funded other efforts to see to the education and welfare of native converts, often known as praying Indians. The New England Company's English benefactors and members were predominantly peers and London merchants. Those merchants worked with their commissioners or agents in Massachusetts to invest the funds and see to their distribution. Their network included many judges of the Witchcraft Court and their associations and associates and such. Stout and Winthrop and Richards were all commissioners at the time of the trials, as were increased mother Sir William Phipps. Stoughton served as treasurer of the commissioners and Richards' London business partner. Major Robert Thompson was governor of the company. Sergeant and Seawall would become commissioners in 1698, though their involvement had started many years earlier. Sergeant's first cousins, the Hashurst brothers, were key members of the company. In 1690, Seawall hosted a meeting attended by Stout and Winthrop and three native representatives 
to determine what legislation might be most expedient for the present settlement of the friend Indians. Surely this was worthy civic and charitable undertaking for godly Puritan merchants, but their role as protectors and benefactors for these friendly Indians could come into conflict with other needs of the colony, and when John Elliot, one of the missionaries paid by the New England Company, had called for the company to purchase substantial tracts of land to be set aside as reserves for the praying Indians, a call that later would be echoed by Seawall. Some land speculations by Stoughton and fellow New England Company councillor Joseph Dudley in the Nipmuc country, it says country, but I don't know what Nipmuc is, was done at least in part with native reserves in mind. In 1682, when the two made the huge purchase of land from Nipmuc, the deed specified that five square miles was to be set aside for the tribe. The next year, the General Court granted Stoughton Dudley and New England Company Governor Robert Thomas a township in the Nipmuc country. It would become the town of Oxford. Presumably, it was established as an investment for the New England Company, though it may have also been seen as a way to protect the native reserved, located just a few miles to the south. Such reserves were well-intentioned parts of the Puritan missionary effort, but they interfered with the expansive demands of a growing English population, which converted all native lands. Also, being an advocate for any native group, even praying Indians, during a series of devastating wars against a substantial segment of the New England native community, made these men unpopular in some circles, even objects of suspicion. King Philip's war had devastated southern New England and left a deep and long-lasting emotional scar. King William's war brought more destruction. Settlers who had suffered in these conflicts would have taken a dim view of anyone helping any natives, even praying Indians, who were Puritans and allies of the English. Furthermore, involvement with praying Indians was just one more connection between judges and the frontier tainting these men with a suggestion of ties to the devil and his minions. If John Alden had been charged with witchcraft in large part because of his role as a frontier military officer, trader and negotiator, imagine how his accusers must have felt about the judges, whose native connections ran far deeper. They were military officers who speculated in native lands and were involved in protecting native communities and converting their inhabitants and they were on the losing end of the war against Native Americans. Collectively, then, there are a number of clues as to why the judges would reverse the legal proceedings of 1680s and convict and execute witches. They must have felt they had a great deal to prove to God, to their fellow Puritan, and even to themselves. For in one way or another, many of these members of the second generation had turned their back on the colony and its mission. A majority of them had attended Harvard, Harvard, but none now served as ministers. When the Bay Colony had faced its deepest crisis over the loss of the Charter, Stoughton, Gedney and Winthrop and Hathorne had accepted appointments under the dominion of New England. Indeed, Stoughton had been a member of the panel that had dealt so harshly with the Essex County tax revolt, in which civic leaders had objected to Governor Andros taking away their rights as Englishmen. 
All the judges held high political offices, many were military commanders under the provisional government and the new government of William Phipps, so they were responsible for the failed political and military policies in a frontier war that threatened the very existence of the colony. Now Providence had given them another chance to prove themselves in defending the colony from Satan's attack. Hmm, it's a fair point I suppose. <clears throat> so, as you can see, the judges had their fingers in pretty much everything. So, I guess, I don't know, maybe they were trying to redeem themselves and they thought that was the way, even though it was the worst way of doing things, I guess. They didn't look at it like that, but yeah. Thank you for listening to this part of the Salem Witch Trials and many blessings.